Thank you, Denny. Good morning, CLC family. In a moment, we are going to hear from God's word. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker who is on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, one of the campus ministries our church supports. She's a regional area director in Southern California for graduate and faculty ministries, received her MDiv from Fuller Seminary and ordained by American Baptist churches. She's originally from Chicago and has a heart for global missions and the intergenerational church. Now, a fun fact about, about her, Jana enjoys running as a sport, and not only that, loves helping people find correct fitting running shoes due to her expertise from working at a shoe store while in college. So without further ado, let's welcome Jana Louie as she continues in our Ephesians series, A Whole New World. Jana? Thank you, Pastor Calvin. Good morning, Christian Layman Church. It is such an honor to join you all this morning. Um, even from afar, I'm joining you from Monrovia, California, just outside of LA. And I'm glad to journey with you through this book of Ephesians. And I also can't believe it's already June. Um, it's been a strange year trying to keep track of time uh, through the pandemic, but we find ourselves in the season of transition, as you all have been mentioning. June is typically the season of graduations. I know you all just celebrated your graduates. And it's also the time where the farmer's markets are bustling. We decide on what summer camps will occupy our kids' time during the summer and help us survive the summer. And we're also adjusting to the changes that a year of college has brought when we welcome our students home again. And this year, we have this awkward added layer of finding our way out of Zoom meetings and learning to reorient ourselves to in-person gatherings. I've also been told that your church has been in a season of transition as well, um, in many ways. And with every transition comes anticipation and also grief. Transition always seems to be more exhausting than we'd ever hoped for, and it also brings about some kind of something different than we would have thought. And one theme that I'm noticing lately in my conversations with people transitioning out of the pandemic is that it seems a little bit more exhausting than usual after an ambiguous year of uncertainty. We've settled into new ways of doing life. We've managed, you've made it this far, and there's really no guide about how to return to a reality that we haven't known before. And what I'm noticing is that under these questions about what we should wear when we leave the house and wondering if we should offer a hug, you know, if that's appropriate when we meet someone, is underlying all that is this pervasive social anxiety that we're all feeling. We wonder if we still belong with a group of friends um, or if, we, if we're, our social circles will operate in the same way. And we wonder what our place is in society. We wonder what faith looks like when we're relegated to online services that have mostly offered us content for our faith throughout the year. And under these logistics of transition are questions about faith and belonging. And I think the church in Ephesus is also, was also wrestling with these questions of faith and belonging as well. And as we continue in this journey through Ephesians, would you receive these words to a people wrestling with faith uncertainty, and belonging. So we'll be in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and I'll be speaking from the CEV version. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, 
I encourage you to live as a people worthy of the call you received from God. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make an effort or be very zealous to preserve the unity of the spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. God has given his grace to each one of us, measured out by the gift that is given by Christ. That's why scripture says when he climbed up to the heights, he captured prisoners and he gave gifts to people. What does the phrase he climbed up mean if it doesn't mean that he had first gone down into the lower regions, the earth? The one who went down is the same one who climbed up above all the heavens so that he might fill everything. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. His purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ. And until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's son, God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. Instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ, who is the head. The whole body grows from him, and it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments. The body makes itself grow in that it builds itself up with a love as each one does its part. The word of the Lord. See, this passage offers a very idealistic picture of the way the church should be, right? Unified in oneness while also embracing the diversity of gifts and perspectives of those in our community. It's an attractive picture, I think, especially in the U.S., where we take pride in our individuality and in our differences. And this year, I think, has given us more than enough wake-up calls to see that different realities in our society have also made for more fracturing than oneness. See, while we were at home this year, we witnessed George Floyd's murder, the January 6th insurrection, the Atlanta shootings, and countless attacks on our elders. We're no strangers to the pain and the fragmentation of our society. So what do we make of this invitation to oneness while also embracing our diversity? See, if I'm honest, I think the idea of unity and diversity sounds like a nice lofty goal, but my experience tells me that it's almost impossible. I have this practice of kind of talking with some friends around the world and asking them what they see in the text. And everyone I asked about Ephesians 4 said, well, that's kind of jarring <laughs> and that's kind of strange because I think even for me, after the last four to five years, unity and diversity can sound like this Christian platitude at its best. And it also, or it could sound like washing over painful histories at its worst. 
And to make matters more complicated, I think history shows us that this phrase unity and diversity has gotten the church on the wrong side of history on many occasions. I think for me, one wake up call to this was I, in 2003, I spent a summer in South Africa where during that summer, we spent one week learning about the history of apartheid. And as we began this week of learning, the facilitators asked us to consider this question, what is truth? And I'll be honest, in my pride and defensiveness, my first thoughts were go-to scriptures or Christian phrases like, well, Jesus is the truth, obviously. But slowly, as I kind of took in this history, I was completely undone by the week. And it was a jarring experience because we learned that it was actually the Dutch Reformed Church's quest to live out their truth that they saw in scripture and the gospel that birthed and brought forth this oppressive apartheid system in South Africa. And I remember starting to question everything as I came to terms with this reality that the Christian church's teachings created the system of evil and violence. Right? It was justification from scripture that stripped people of their God-given dignity. And that was hard for me to stomach. Because I remember, I, I later did learn that it was the Anglican church that was instrumental in dismantling apartheid, but I was still shaken by this reality that Christian teachings could cause such harm and evil. If you visit the apartheid museum in Johannesburg, which I think you'll see a picture of on the slide there, um, you'll see that the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper is credited as one who offered a theological basis for apartheid. And what makes this even more complicated is Kuiper's theology isn't all bad. It's actually brought people to bring about a lot of good in this world. But to be a little bit more specific, some of the biblical basis offered for the apartheid system was that God intended for unity and diversity. Right? The argument was that people are created differently. So therefore, people should have different roles in society. Right? In other words, a society can only function in unity and oneness if people play the roles they were intended to play. Right? You hear echoes of that in the latter part of the text that we just heard. So from this biblical basis of unity and diversity, the apartheid system of oppression and segregation was founded. So years after my first visit to South Africa, I entered seminary and took my questions with me. I think there was a part of me that wanted some foolproof way to make sure what I believe or what I taught wouldn't cause this kind of harm. Well, what I learned was even more disturbing, right? Both the church that articulated a biblical basis for apartheid and the church that argued against apartheid talked about this concept of unity and diversity, right? Both churches actually use the same phrases and they use the same ways of interpreting scripture. The only apparent difference that I saw or that it seemed was the church's ability to understand their power and their status as the church in their society. So let me put it in a different way. The Anglican church brought in voices from the black and the colored communities like Desmond Tutu and others to shape their teachings. Whereas the Dutch reformed church held a biblical understanding that was untouched by the people who bore the brunt of their decision. You see, championing unity and diversity from the white community in South Africa meant dictating how and where each community would live and exist in the social order. But unity and diversity for the black and colored communities meant feeding the hungry. It meant sharing resources. And it meant advocating for the least of these. See, the difference wasn't in the way that they read the Bible or the words they said. The difference was in their understanding of how the church 
responds to suffering in society. So what does this have to do with us as we engage in Ephesians 4 today? I think what we learn is that we don't study scripture in a vacuum. We don't engage scripture in a vacuum. But instead, our understanding of scripture is shaped by our family stories, by our status and our place in society, and the church's current role in our current society. Right? This history invites us to engage this passage courageously by asking hard questions, not shying away from them. And it means us not looking away in the face of painful realities. It means owning up to which side of history we participated in. And I think it means believing people, especially when they've told us or when they tell us they've been hurt by the church. And I'll be honest, this was a pretty difficult passage for me to wrestle with because I've been listening and holding stories of many people who are disillusioned with the church. Um, especially in the past few years, from teenagers and young adults to those who have been faithful churchgoers for over five to six decades of their lives. And I think especially these past years, as we've seen the churches, the U.S. church's relationship in particular with politics and society, I think I'm hearing that people are confused about where, how we got to where we are now. We're confused about how the church should respond to the many crises in our world, because there's a lot. And it's overwhelming. And as I hold these stories, I'm tempted to hear this text either as Christian catchphrases or I hear this text with disillusionment from my disappointment with the church. And with this, I want to invite us today to engage with all of your questions, with the grief of transitions, and engage with your hopes for faith and belonging in this next season. And as you welcome your honest questions, feelings, and thoughts, I pray that God's grace would find us and heal us so that we may be God's people together. So today, we find ourselves in a letter to a people who are living in the bustling city of Ephesus. Right? Similar to Los Angeles and San Francisco, Ephesus is a port city that brought in goods from different parts of the world. It was the, the up-and-coming city for the rich and powerful, setting the tone for Asia Minor. And as far as power and authority goes, Ephesus was a home to Artemis, the Greek goddess of childbirth and nature. And it also claimed Augustus Caesar, an, an emperor, a human emperor, as lord and god. And part of this was because peace, political peace and stability came through the Pax Romana, and that was attributed to Augustus Caesar. So at every turn and in every picture frame, there were pillars, statues, buildings, and coins to remind you that Augustus Caesar is Lord and is worthy of worship. See, Ephesus is where you go when you want to make a name for yourself. But you got to make sure you play by the rules, right? You give honor to Artemis and definitely worship and bow down to Caesar. Otherwise, you might as well pack up and go home because you won't get in the networks that you need to survive. That's Ephesus. So you see, juxtaposed with this alluring epicenter is this small group of Christians that Paul is writing to in Ephesians. In the past months, uh, as you've journeyed through the first three chapters, you've seen the nods to this culture and society through Paul's use of almost over-the-top words of encouragement to the church in Ephesus. But here in this chapter, there's a switch and we begin to receive guidance and caution from Paul for the small minority community. And it's important to recognize that Paul is writing to a community that is not in the seat of decision-making power. 
they're not the ones with power here in Ephesus. So it's to the small minority community that Paul says, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you receive from God. Conduct yourselves with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love and make every effort to preserve the unity of the spirit with the peace that ties you together. You see, for a community that's just trying to survive in this harsh world, it seems like a difficult word, doesn't it? Right? Living with all humility, gentleness, patience, and love almost sounds like this invitation to weakness and silent obedience. And maybe I think it frustrates me even a little bit more because it almost feels like it's asking for this model minority expression of faith. A faith that somehow seems to be the better way while silencing the injustices of the world around us. I mean, is this really what Paul is asking for from the small minority community, a powerless community in Ephesus? Is he asking for a passive faith in the name of grace? See, though I'm often attuned to the complex realities that come with being an Asian American woman in the U.S., one piece I've been aware of or learning to grow in is that I'm often unaware of the privileges that come with being a Christian in the, in the U.S. It usually takes conversations with friends who live as religious minorities around the world to even see and understand my privilege as a Christian. The years ago, I spent time with friends and colleagues in Malaysia where they don't have the privilege of religious liberty. My friends would go to great lengths to explain that religion, race, and politics were interconnected. I think you're seeing a slide of one of the rallies um, asking that uh, for corruption to be um, rid from their, uh, from their elections and from their government. And so my friends would talk about how they're constantly running into the limits of their rights as Christians in their homeland. And as I heard story after story about how Christ being a Christian meant somehow accepting that they're less than others, right? Because of laws, policies, or, or, uh, and so on. I asked an honest question to a friend of mine. I asked, how do you maintain hope when fighting for your rights? Simple question in my mind. And my friend just replied, well, sometimes the most Christian thing to do isn't to fight for your own rights, but to fight for the rights of others. And his response has stayed with me because I realized a few things. First, I realized how right-centric I am as a U.S. Christian. And it's not that I don't believe in having rights and I'm not grateful for my rights and grateful for the privileges afforded to us. But what I mean is that I can often confuse having rights with having dignity. So having rights doesn't equate and doesn't bring about someone having dignity. My friend's response was calling me to a different way of belonging that dignified myself my community, and others. And as I thought about my friend's response, I realized also how I often have this limited imagination for how to follow Jesus in this world. What I learned from my friend's response is that humility, gentleness, patience, and love look very different than I think, right? Humility isn't this false sense of pride that rejects any kind of affirmation that comes our way. Right. Humility is the absence of envy, right? which allows us to see ourselves and one another as God sees us. Gentleness isn't weakness, but gentleness is choosing not to surrender to the violent ways of this world. And patience isn't passivity, 
but it, it is at faithful and active confession that Jesus is Lord in this broken world. So for a church in Ephesus, choosing humility, gentleness, and patience is declaring that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar and not Artemis, right? Who needs statues, pillars, and temples. See, when Caesar is on the coins and the pillars of society, Jesus' way of love is even more powerful. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love offer us a way forward as a community that actually subverts the harsh and violent ways of this world. So instead of playing by the rules of Ephesus, Paul is offering the church a really different way of being together in this world, right? The way of humility, of gentleness, patience, and love. That way gives agency to God's people to create a different way of being in this world. You see, my friends, in a city full of social media influencers who paint this grandiose picture of an unattainable life, God's people are called to choose humility, to see themselves as God sees them, nothing more and nothing less. In a city that champions Second Amendment rights in the name of self-protection, God's people are to choose gentleness, a way that doesn't hunger for power, but lifts up the vulnerable. And in a city full of trend-setting tech companies that seem endlessly powerful, God's people are to choose the way of love and of patience, the way of faithfulness that's unseen and at home in the shadows. And the invitation to all humility, gentleness, patience, and love isn't a passive call for God's people. It's the radical way of being followers of Jesus in a world that yearns for power. You see, the faith that we belong to Jesus, a confession that challenges the powers around us, no matter how consuming they seem to be, it's that kind of faith. Jesus' way reminds us that though God is over all, through all, and in all, Jesus still chooses to descend in order to ascend. You see, this isn't a passive call, but it's one that offers agency to God's people. And as a minority community, maybe like more like Muslims in the U.S. than Christians, they're used to being scapegoats for Roman society. But this isn't a call for them to put their heads down and just stay silent. But it's a call to remember that Christ's way is counterintuitive to the ways of this world. Right? Paul's instructions to, are to the community of believers in Ephesus. So they're together to embody this way of humility, gentleness, patience and love. You see, their resistance to the pressures of Ephesian society is their way of being together. So to have faith in Jesus is to choose the way of going down, because that's the way of going up. Power is not found in hoarding and keeping it for ourselves or, or so that we have influence, but it's found in the way of gentleness and of patience. And when they're prone to hopelessness in this all-consuming empire, they find belonging as they love one another. To survive this harsh world is to choose this way of Jesus. I think transitions hold a lot of grief, and it makes space for grief. But transitions also provide space for reflection. When we celebrate, when we honor those who are leaving us in our community or different things or, or loss even, we also look back with nostalgia. Right? We tell stories that have been forgotten, we remember, and we celebrate. 
And with every story, I think we become aware of these narratives that shape our communities. There's a tenderness as we share stories and we celebrate that sometimes feels even too sacred to share and a little bit too vulnerable to offer when we feel unsafe because transition can feel ambiguous. But I wonder how might God be inviting CLC into the way of Jesus as you hold your community's tender stories in this time? Maybe it means reflecting on how CLC has been a community of humility, gentleness, patience, and love in the midst of a really broken society. And then from there, I wonder if it might invite your CLC community and your family to consider where might you have unintentionally mimicked the culture of our society? And from that place of remembering and maybe of grief, how might God be inviting the CLC family to embody a different way of being together in our broken world? You see, I'm the type of person who can sometimes be lost in my thinking about big picture realities. My good friends know that I can be somewhat of a sad soul, especially when I'm reminded of the pain and the brokenness in our world. And as I mentioned before, the last years have been a wake-up call in many ways for the U.S. church because we've really broken trust with our society and, and throughout uh, generations um, leading us to this point. And unlike the church in Ephesus, we aren't the powerless in our society. Well, we've often actually sided with the political powers of our country. And as I read more news articles or watch different documentaries, it's easy for me to consider what I hope for the church to be. So that's where my mind kind of wanders and goes. But almost as if, as if to keep us grounded, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that we all play a part in this community. Though they're, a powerless, they're powerless as a community in their society, God's grace is given to each person in the community. And again, they're reminded that they aren't just passive participants in this minority community, but they're given unique roles as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that they may be a community of humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Right? God's goal is for us to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the fullness of Christ. They're not to be like children who are just influenced by the world around them or this consuming empire that is Ephesus. But instead, as they use their God-given gifts, they remind each other of the community that they're meant to be. I mean, let's be honest, being in community is hard. I mean, unless you wanna stay on a surface level, there's always infighting, right? We're people. And everyone has their different opinions on who's in and who's out. And there are those who always have a little bit more influence or more influence in the community. And then there are those who've accepted that they're just on the fringe of the community. They've accepted their fringe status. And yet the invitation here is to consider your place in the community, whether you're someone with an official position or you're someone who's still trying to figure out your place. And maybe the invitation here isn't for a picture perfect church, but one that wrestles with the complexities of different gifts and perspectives. Maybe the invitation is to have humility, to embrace your God-given gifts, but also humility to acknowledge when the way you used your gift has hurt others. Maybe it's the invitation to be gentle and patient when we wanna move the church towards a certain direction, but others are still in pain. CLC family, as you continue in the season of grief and hope, 
May God give you the grace to love one another well. May you have the courage to speak truth with complete honesty and be gentle to listen deeply to one another. And in this new season, may you be a community where the world can see the way of Christ's love in your community together. My friends, I don't think the world is looking for a picture-perfect church or a perfect church. We're well past that. But I do think the world is looking for a church that follows in the way of Christ's love. A love that has the humility to say when we're wrong. A love that has the gentleness to hold deep pain in the church and outside. And a love that has the patience to be faithful in God's work of peace, even when we aren't recognized. A love that offers radical belonging to a community in transition. May God hold and sustain CLC in this journey. Let's pray. God, thank you. Uh, We do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you've been trustworthy in all these years of CLC's life. God, we also recognize that there's pain and grief in transition. Um, And I just pray that even in this time of transition, would you, in your patient love, hold the sadness and the grief and also the hope together. God, we pray that even as CLC discerns this next season and this next step of this journey, pray, God, that you would, would you give the CLC family wisdom and discernment uh, to reflect well and to hold the stories of the past well? But God, would you also give them discernment about what it means to be a community of humility, gentleness, patience, and love in this world? God, we pray that CLC would be a place of radical belonging, one that subverts the powers of the world around us. God, that you might be seen, Jesus, that you might be seen as Lord and King. So God, the one who holds our grief, the one who holds our joy, would you hold together our grief and our celebration, our longings and our hope. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.